Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod where we are picking up precisely 120 seconds after we just ended the previous one. But the magic of the podcasting universe means that you've had to wait a few days for part two of what was unquestionably a fascinating discussion. Um, The last couple of podcasts that I've recorded, I don't know if it's just that I haven't done a lot of podcasting for a little while, um, but I have massively enjoyed these. That may just be me thinking that I'm contributing in a more active and pertinent way than I would normally do and deluding myself that my contributions have anything of value to add to my guests' um, musings, but will allow myself to delude myself. Um, I don't even know where I'm going with that. I'm I'm waffling. Perhaps we should have stopped. Uh, um, We aren't going to stop, though. I have Graham Callister back in the house. If you missed part one of Napoleon's Waterloo Men, scroll back. It's a free-to-access episode. It's a full hour where we talk about the the first part of this. So if you haven't listened to that, then part two probably isn't going to make any sense to you. If you are not familiar, Graham is Senior Lecturer in History and War Studies at York St. John University. He's the author of War, Public Opinion and Policy in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 1785 to 1815. That's available at Palgrave Macmillan. As I said at the end of episode one, I believe at the time of recording. So if it's no longer the case, don't shout at me. There was 40% off at Palgrave Macmillan. I know Palgrave books do come with a dearer price tag, so... You might want to capitalise whilst you can. Um, He is also co-author of the respected and best-selling book, Battle, Understanding Conflict, From Hastings to Hellmand, From Pen and Sword. Graham, welcome back. Um, I'm not going to ask you how you are because that would be contrived, but I do just want to thank you for continuing with this, despite the fact that you have you are recovering from a nasty bout of COVID. So thank you for sticking with it. Um, 
we'll we'll pick up where we left off essentially um and we're gonna start dealing with some really meaty questions now um one of the big revelations i think here and we alluded to this a little bit in part one is that this isn't a raw force is it what implications do you think that has for how these troops are used in the course of the campaign. And just a reminder, folks, that Graham's work predominantly focuses on Durland's First Corps. That is the body of troops that uh, marches backwards and forwards between Cachabra and Nini um, over the course of the 16th without really being involved in either in any substantial manner. And then is uh, the meant to be the hammer blow that is going to break through Wellington's left flank but of course is hit by the charges of the Union and Household Heavy Cavalry Brigades. So that's what we're fundamentally talking about here. Um, but yeah, in terms of how raw this force is or isn't, just give us a, a sense of what you found and what implications do you think that has for, I guess, perhaps even Napoleon's confidence in terms of how he's going to deploy his troops and what he's going to do with them? Yeah, so the uh, the, the French army for the 1815 campaign and specifically Delon's First Corps, is, is by no means a, a raw and untried force. Um, about 99% of these soldiers have served before in some capacity before Napoleon's abdication in April of 1814. The other 1% are volunteers from between April 1814 and, and May of 1815. Um, no one who volunteers after May of 1815 actually gets to Waterloo. Um, probably another couple of percent of the, the core had been in the army, but not actually on active service in 1814. So on garrison duty, internal duty, in depots, um, others had seen minimal service. Um, and some of these had, had seen minimal service years ago. So in, in 1809, um, about 150 or so men who fight at Waterloo in First Corps uh, had been conscripted in the middle of 1809, found themselves at Flissingen or Flushing in English, in, in August 1809, when the British rock up, suddenly you know, siege the uh, the town and force a, comp a capitulation. So these men had seen uh, you know a few days of action um, in a siege, and that was all. Uh, they'd been captured in 1809. They'd been returned in 1814. So their six years on paper of of service had all been sent spent in Britain as a prisoner. Um, so we, we've got 95% at least of this this force that has actually seen combat um most of them had had seen more than one campaign as well so by no means a raw force the average enrollment year and that, that's both mean and median for for the statisticians uh, who want to know what i mean by average um so mean and median enrollment year is 1812 which means that at least half of the core had at least three years experience so you know the, these aren't as experienced as the British Army. Um, if you're looking at Picton's 5th Division, which faces up to Delon's Corps at Waterloo, 40% um, in some regiments had seen seven years' service. 10% uh, might have seen 14 years' service. In this French force, um, maybe only 1% of Delon's Corps were actually veterans from before 1800. It's, it's a far, far smaller number. Um, mostly because they were discharged in 1814, but also obviously destructive experiences in Russia. Um, so, so they're not as experienced maybe as, as some forces, but they're by no means raw. Where they, they do have less experience maybe is serving in the same regiment. Some of the regiments are quite coherent. The 105th, for example, has about 600 men who had served there at least three years. Other regiments 
only about 100, 150 men who had been in the same regiment for three years. Um, there's a big amalgamation in 1814, um, and around half of most of the regiments arrived in the regiment at that point. So they haven't been in the same unit for that long. That's maybe where some of the inexperience comes from. Um, but Napoleon himself said that this is you know, a, a, one of the best armies he's ever had. Uh, he also said at other times it's, it's not a very good army. Um, it depends on what he was trying to argue at any one time as to what he said, of course. Um, but even Napoleonic apologists would often say, look, this, this was a good army. Um, I mean, they were outnumbered two to one in the campaign, so it's easy enough to say good army, but uh, lost nonetheless. How it's, that affects how it's used on the campaign I think Napoleon's got got confidence in this army. Um, he in 1814 he also uses conscripts and national guardsmen in a way that he would use other soldiers. So actually operationally, I'm not sure how much it affects him, but he clearly has confidence in the soldiers. He puts them in positions where they're going to take casualties, but he thinks they're going to come through. Um, and and First Corps, like all the others, sees that. At Lini, you see that with the right wing of the army at Waterloo. You see it with the left wing, with, with First Corps especially. They are thrown in in formations that will, will take enormous casualties, but he has confidence they are going to win. They're going to steamroll the opposition. They're not going to flee uh, at first sight of, of enemy musketry or artillery. They are going to win. Um, and, and they come damn close to doing it. Uh, you know, First Corps, um, for all it is eventually routed, uh, this is the moment where Napoleon could have won the battle or at least Wellington could have lost it, because uh, the Prussians are nowhere near. Napoleon could still commit his reserves. They, they come close, and Napoleon, I think, has the confidence they can do that. Um, I mean, wh where they actually fall down is, is maybe less the experience of the soldiers and more the experience of their generals. Derlon himself, very good. I'll, I'll happily talk about him. Um, the divisional commanders, pretty poor. Um, they're a real mixed bag of lack of experience or third-rate soldiers. Um, Sorry, that, that's maybe harsh third rate, but they're, they're not the uh, the top draw chaps uh, that he would have, have had at, at Austerlitz, at Jena, um, at the big battles of the early empire. Um, so that's that's somewhere they fall down. But in experience of the soldiers themselves, the overwhelming majority have seen service. Oh boy, is my rabbit hole brain, when it comes to being podcast host, going into overdrive with what you, you've offered up there. Um so many strands to this so in the first part we were talking a lot about how this feeds into wider research um and you were talking about cohesion immediately i'm starting to think about ed Koss's work and kind of looking at that that primary group cohesion and um the the one question i often have for ed is so what is different you know why is it that the british army is able to demonstrate this and, and we can attribute success to um perhaps a, a primary group cohesion. And I'm quite convinced by that argument within the British force. But equally, the suggestion that the French don't form primary groups would be daft. Of course, soldiers are going to socialise and they're going to sit down in their mess groups and chew the fat and all the rest of it. And what you say there about amalgamation perhaps being an issue is really interesting in terms of perhaps part of the reason why, at least within the context of the Waterloo campaign, can't apply the same thing for other campaigns, but perhaps why within the context of the Waterloo campaign, perhaps the troops were at a degree of a disadvantage. Now, I would also suggest that in terms of what First Corps goes through, they're not really put into combat situations where 
primary group cohesion would play a vast role because when you think about what happens to particularly second and third division um in in essentially being hit by the british heavy cavalry charge well they they almost seem to get hit out of nowhere from their perspective so they don't really have the chance to fight as a cohesive whole they're, they're just kind of um almost steamrolled um but that's really interesting in because it also points to the possibility that this is an issue for other units. So for, perhaps, we, speculation here, folks, I'll be the first to acknowledge that, but perhaps this is also a factor in why Hougamont ends up being so tough a nut to crack because there is less cohesion within regiments to then work effectively within the task of trying to take the the, the whole complex that is the, the chateau, the orchard um, and the woods around it. It's also interesting to dwell on those three years service that they've seen. So we are talking Russia, we're talking the the campaign um, in Germany, and then we're talking the defense of France. These are these are the troops that do remarkable things, quite frankly, in the things that on paper you wouldn't necessarily expect of them, particularly in 1813, 1814. Um, and see some horrendous fighting. So in terms of these troops having battle experience, that battle experience is is hard graft. They fought incredibly well and, and done everything that could be reasonably asked of them. So again, it kind of points to this idea that, as you've said, this is a good army. Um, it's, it's not shoddy in the slightest. Lots of waffle there, but what really got me interested was... Um, you pointing the finger, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but basically kind of saying, look, the divisional commanders, not great. So talk me through that. I often get confused um, with who's even in command of first division, quite frankly, because I see different names being bandied around. So perhaps just it's worth us speaking briefly about divisional commanders, if you're happy to do so, who they are. I mean, hey, why not just give us a, a quick kind of run through on Durlon as well um there's no harm in doing that and then if you can just say a bit more about how that plays into their their roles uh, over the course of the Waterloo campaign mm -hmm. so um well the, the first corps is commanded by uh, Jean-Baptiste Trouet the, the Comte Durlon um and Durlon is one of the most experienced corps commanders in the French army of 1815 obviously a lot of the marshals and generals don't return to service Napoleon has a limited number of men to choose from. And Durlon, he kind of gets command because he's already on the scene. He, he's in northern France in March of 1815. He tries to launch a coup with the troops of, of the north in favor of Napoleon. Uh, and the Bourbons try to have him arrested for it. And this, this shows he's a Bonaparte loyalist. And so when Napoleon creates the first corps of observation to, to look after the northern frontier the week after he comes back, Durlon is your man in charge. But he's not a political appointee by any means. He has fought through Spain. Um, he, he got his first independent command in 1809 in, in Italy, uh, in um, southern Austria, I suppose, in, in Tyrol, uh, putting down the Tyrolese rebellion, which he did successfully. Um, he then goes to Spain, where he's given a series of corps commands. He does relatively well. He commands the army of the centre in 1813 under Soult. Um, he wins, a, say, a disputed victory. I think it's called a Meyer. Um, some say this is a, a British victory, but... Uh, he does well enough there. Um, he's well respected by his, his peers, by his troops. 
he's not spectacular. He doesn't get a marshal's baton, and he's probably never in line for one, but he's a good choice as a core commander. The divisional commanders, though, Napoleon's beginning to scrape the bottom of the barrel slightly. The chap who should have been in command of 1st Division uh, was Jacques, Jacques Alexandre Francois Alex. Um, but he doesn't command 1st Division because Napoleon sends him off to Lille in charge of a special commission. Uh, and he can't make it back to his corps in time. This is the kind of chaos that 1st Corps is, is facing. You know, A key divisional commander is sent on a, a minor mission and no one bothers telling him when he might need to return to the army for the start of the campaign. Um, so instead, that division is, is commanded by Kiu de Passage, who is a, a brigadier general, essentially. Um, they, they changed the name in, in 1815 to Marshal de Comp. Um, I, I don't know why they changed the terminology, they just do. Um, but he's, he's a brigadier general level. Um, never really had divisional command. He was promoted for... Uh, a, a rearguard action in Spain uh, outside Badajoz. Uh, so, you know, he's good at commanding a regiment, even a brigade, but he's never had a divisional command. Donzelo, who is in charge of second division, is the oldest of the, the generals, but he has been in charge of, of the Ionian Islands from, from about 1807. So he's promoted to general of division in, in I think, 1807, sent to the Ionian Islands as their general, uh, governor general. And he does well. He he defends Crete from the British. You know, he he governs quite well. But he's had seven years as a, as an administrator. He's never held a field command. Uh, he'd been in staff roles before that, so he is not a field commander. Uh, and this shows now in in eighteen fifteen, on the early in the morning on the sixteenth of June, he gives an order of the day in which he is disgusted at his men for their their pillaging of the population. And he says, no, I'm not having this. You've been off stealing stuff. You've broken into people's houses. There have been assaults. There's been sexual assault. I'm not having this. You can't do this. Officers take roll calls at every halt. Any man leaving the column should be arrested. And his officers must have looked at him and just thought, do you have any idea how Napoleonic war works? Can I just put in a, a counterpoint to that? I'm, I'm with you, absolutely. You know, time and place. Um <laughs> Because when you look at what they then have to go through, you know, it's really not the moment. Um, but compare that to what happens in the British Army on the morning of the 18th of June, when we have sources, uh, reliable sources, pointing to the fact that General Adams um, turns around to troops of, uh, I believe it's the 95th, um, and certainly the um, light troops, and says, look, you've had to stand on as part of the kind of the vanguard all night you've done exceptionally well there are three farmhouses over there we're all going to turn our backs go do what you want to do kind of thing it's a completely different mindset and this is the british army where you've got wellington who has this pathological hatred of plunder um and and that's coming from senior command so completely different ethos in the sense of a an appreciation of time and place and, and there are those moments when actually it's in your best interest to turn that blind eye yeah and, and the french army they they subsist on pillage exactly. um this is where men get their firewood they they do it naturally um you settle down for camp for the night men go off foraging they call it but they're pillaging um and this has been a time-honored way of making war for a decade at least in the french army and for him to say to the, the troops, no, you, you can't be doing that, just shows his, his lack of understanding of, of how the French army actually operates in the field. Um, no, maybe not the regulations, but the reality. Um, the, you know, the British army, of course, goes the other way sometimes uh, in the, the King's German Legion 
Umpteda on the 17th uh, gives a real dressing down to some troops from, I think it's the second light battalion uh, for stealing a couple of chickens from the village of Bezzy uh, that they'd retreated through. And, you know, I don't think he confiscated the chickens though. So, you know, they got a shouting at, but uh, they also got a decent dinner. So I doubt they'd be taking that trade. They will absolutely absolutely have taken that. But, um, you know, the the British army, you know, has um, a tradition of of not allowing pillage. Now, of course, men pillaged um, on an industrial scale, but the French army, it's kind of embedded. So Donzelo shows he doesn't really understand the, the way of making war, perhaps. Um, the other two guys, um, Morgagnier in the, the third division, Durot in the fourth division, they're, they're solid. Um, you know, they've held commands before. They've both been administrators for, for a time and were brought back towards the tail end of the empire when good generals are hard to find and when there's more divisions to command. Uh, so, you know, 18, 13, 14. Um, so they, they both do okay, but they wouldn't have been back in command had Napoleon not been desperate in 1813. They'd have slowly slid into desk jobs. Uh, Girot especially is seen as a man who doesn't like Napoleon, um, but he's he's a, a loyal Frenchman. He rallies to the cause to defend France against external enemies. Uh, Jacquinot, who's in charge of the cavalry, um, has been mostly a brigadier general, recently promoted to um, lieutenant general or general of division. Um, he did okay in 1814 as a divisional commander, but he's not spectacular. He's probably the, the, you know, the, the most experienced or the most consistently experienced but these are not men from the top drawer they're not big fighting generals most of them are either recently promoted in Kyo or Shekino or they've been administrators for a big portion of their their careers um they they also very few of them have fought the British before um or, or not consistently and not in the peninsula Delon has um although very interestingly not at Salamanca um and none of the divisional commanders and indeed none of those regiments in First Corps were at Salamanca. And the reason I mentioned Salamanca, that is the only other time that Wellington uses heavy dragoons to overrun uh, French units. Um, and the fact that uh, some of the men were, by the way, have, uh, have found individual soldiers who were at Salamanca, captured, wounded, uh, or just in the regiments that were there. But none of those regiments and none of the divisional commanders or the corps commander or nay had been at Salamanca, which is... is I don't know, maybe an interesting point, maybe not. Um, but the, these generals are not the top draw. Um, Dolan actually writes to Davout, who's the Minister of War, of course, in 1815, uh, in the middle of May, so a month before the campaign, saying, I don't have any brigadiers. Um, you know, you, you've nominated some, and they haven't arrived. Could you please send me some people to command my brigades? Um, this is a cobbled together force. It's, it's very much extemporized. Um, and th- there are French officers who say that as well. Who you know, These are, are experienced men. They're brave, but they've never fought together before. They don't maneuver. Um, the, the regiments, their, their colonels are taking them on marches three times a week, as we've asked them. They've never maneuvered as a brigade or a division before. So these units really are, are coming together. They're being knitted together in June of 1815. Another two months, they'd have probably had a lot more of a chance. Uh, another year, they'd have been brilliant, but um, you know they they are very much still being formed. Um, the last man that I found who actually arrives in a unit to fight at Waterloo arrives on the 10th of June. Um, I think he comes from the second line, maybe. Uh, he's a sergeant in the 85th, if I remember right. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. Um, but you know the 10th of June, and then 
he's marching on campaign five days later. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. He's an experienced man, but he wouldn't know his comrades. Uh, he'd have no idea. They wouldn't know his voice when he's shouting at them to close up on the battlefield. They'd have no idea who he is. Um, it, it's not the best way of doing things for an army. I love the insights that this is giving us. Uh, you, you tapped into it right there when you said they wouldn't have known his voice when he gave the order to close up. And it's things like that that make vast differences in the context of a battle. Um, it, it's fascinating to to hear, because we talk a lot about how, t to what extent is Napoleon operating with an inverted commas B team when it comes to the Waterloo campaign. Obviously, we talk about Bertier, we talk about Davout, foremost amongst, um, the other day we were talking, I was talking with Rachel, and, you know, we were kind of, speculating what if Lan had made it to Waterloo you know these are the kinds of things that we often focus on but you make a really good point that these are these are admin guys and it's to my shame it's not something that I'd ever considered um I'm more inclined to sort of poke Jerome and, and go well you know he wasn't too great yeah um, the, I mean the other half of the battlefield you've got a Bachelou who I think is, is relatively solid Foy good general and yes. then Jerome, who, yeah, it was useless. Um, he was a useless king. He was a, a fairly useless general. Uh, he was awful in Russia in 1812. Now, he's not a, a military man. Um, or maybe I'm being harsh to to, to Jerome. Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, Foy, of, of all of the ones that we've talked about, Foy is the one who was at Salamanca. Hmm. Um, and, and on top of that, he then looks at what happens at Garthi Hernandez. And goes, this is the most audacious, specifically about the King's German Legion, but he describes it as the most audacious um, British cavalry charge of the entire Peninsula War. Um, folks, I haven't got the time to tell you about Garthia Hernandez, um, but it's, yeah, it's a whole story in and of itself. But even Foy hasn't actually seen what the, the British heavy cavalry can do at Salamanca itself. He just witnesses um, the KGL. Yeah, and, um, and you know, you do wonder if, if Foy would have said something had he been in, in Dolan's corps, although two of the divisional commanders did say something. Durut says, well, can I actually deploy a brigade on the right because I want to defend my flank? And he's told no. Uh, Marconnier uh, says, well, no, shouldn't we We kind of hold back a bit uh, and and you know keep a reserve? And Dolan says, no, the emperor's orders are to attack. Uh, so you know, even Foy would have probably been ignored had he said, okay, what about cavalry? Um, but uh, yeah, the, the it would be interesting had one of the, the generals who'd been at Salamanca actually been in that division to see, or the, the first court to see if they did anything else. I mean, Marmont's report on Salamanca, by the way, which I did look up for this, doesn't mention uh, the cavalry at all. Um, his, his full reports to the Minister of War and to Napoleon do not mention the British cavalry charge. Um, I mean, his report is also a, a victory that went wrong at the last minute kind of thing. Um, as so many defeats are, are dressed up to be. Um, but th there's nothing that would have told those French commanders that the British have a cavalry force that's capable of doing this. That famous breakfast that they all had where they sat around discussing things, uh, they're quite dismissive of the British cavalry capabilities. Um, they don't even mention any of the Allied cavalry. Um, now, the King's German Legion don't get a look in. The, the Dutch Heavy Cavalry Brigade under Trip isn't mentioned. Um, or, or at least no one recorded that they mentioned it. Um, so we can assume here that the 
the French commanders are not thinking in terms of of allied horsemen um, because they don't have that experience. It's not not really in their frame of reference. They're not stupid. They they don't deliberately go in thinking they can't possibly attack us with horsemen, but they go in a formation that should have been able to defend itself. Well, we can get into why it couldn't. Uh, they do flank the force on the left, at least, with uh, a brigade of Caressier. Um So you know, they, they're, they're doing the right things, but they it probably just didn't really feature in their minds that there may be a major cavalry counterattack with two and a half thousand angry men on big horses. But you made a really good point. I don't know for the life of me why I've never considered this before. But you're you're bang on. Because all four divisions attack in echelon, and we'll talk about what that means in just a second, there is no reserve. There is literally, it, it's all frontline deployment. Okay, yes, it's staggered because they're going in in echelon. But yeah, I don't know why this has never occurred to me before, but there is... The, the, the 85th does get left on the far right flank, but the 85th is a, the smallest regiment in the division. It's only 800 men. Um and on the left, Bachelot's division of 2nd Corps advances about a third of the way into the valley, which is utterly pointless because it's not pinning Alton in place. Who, who's, that, that's the division on the other side of the crossroads. Uh, it's not supporting the attack. It, they're doing nothing. They should probably have advanced further, but didn't for, for whatever reason. Um, possibly they were waiting in echelon as well. But um, fundamentally, there's no reserve left in place, which is why it's such a disaster when things go wrong, um, there's no one to fall back on. Um, if you want later, I can talk all about how Schmitz, uh, who's one of the brigade commanders in second division, claims that they were further back and claims that they were a bit of a reserve. But um, he also claims never to have encountered any British infantry. So who knows what he was doing that day. Um, but fundamentally, this, this echelon attack by first corps throws them all in, leaves nothing behind. Now, that, that's great if it goes well. If it doesn't, um, spoiler alert, it didn't. Um, you know, you, you have nothing to fall back on. Um, and the enemy horsemen can, can run amok for 20 minutes, half an hour. And indeed they do. Um, oh, so many rabbit holes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like being a kid at Christmas. Um, whatever the podcasting equivalent of that is, that's what I'm living right now. Um we, we did stray a little bit from um, some key questions that I think kind of set up what follows. Just a, a quick one. Um, in terms of age, what are we looking at here with these guys? Uh, so the average age is about 24 years old. So, um, you know, conscripts come in at 20, so they're, they're older, they're experienced. Um, some regiments are a bit lower, 23 and a few of them. The 85th, I think, is the oldest with an average age of, of 26 years old. Um, but they're all around this this age of 24, and that's mean and median age. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So let's... Uh, no, before we talk about the, the fighting itself, there is one other thing that I want to talk about. Um, you, I believe from... I mean, we've talked about this a couple of times in a non-podcasting sense. I believe you looked a little bit at the Imperial Guard. Is that right? A little, yeah. A little. And the, the thing that often gets touted about the Imperial Guard is, oh, the standards are lowered in, in 1815. Um, and there are decrees, from what I understand, that, that point to that. Both within the Imperial Guard and across the army as a whole, is there any indication of, inverted commas, desperation? I mean, what you said earlier, and I can't believe I forgot this, that there there is no conscription for 1815. Um, perhaps suggest not, but do you get a sense of, in a desperation to fill the ranks, certain things just get quietly ignored, um, which therefore has perhaps an implication on the the overall picture of this force? Um, yes, no. I mean, in 1814 and late 1813 and 1814, standards had definitely been lowered, including minimum height. Um, you know, to start with, it was about 152. By then, it's about 147. So you're taking men a good couple of inches shorter than they had been before. Um, ill health is is less of an excuse by 1813-14. And these men, of course, are in the army in 1815 still, some of them who haven't been discharged. Um, they're not accepting men into the army in 1815 who are, are less able and fit because they don't really have to. They can send them to the third battalions. The war battalions have mostly got good men, um, at least you know, able to withstand the rigors of campaign, as they'd say. It's actually interesting. Some of the war battalions send men back to the depots, not many, but um, especially under 17s. So 14, 15, 16-year-old kids who were in the, the regiments during peacetime are sent back to the depots from the first and second battalions before they start the campaign. They don't want kids with them. Um, and some of these kids are actually you know, of a reasonable height, so they're not necessarily physically weaker i just suspect they don't want to see 15 year olds being torn to pieces um so the army isn't having to take whatever it can get necessarily the imperial guard um is basically discharged by the bourbons um they keep two regiments of um or, or two battalions I think of uh, of troops and it has to be reformed in 1815 very quickly and napoleon basically takes 10 men per battalion from all of the line regiments to form the Imperial Guard. They're mostly experienced, but some aren't. Some have only been in service since 1813, 14. Um, a few, but um, no, some are, are relatively inexperienced. So in that way, there is a dilution, I think, of the entry requirements to the Guard, because even the, the old Guard battalions aren't all as veteran as they had been. The young Guard, of course, has always been conscripts anyway. Um, so I think there's, there's a bit of a dilution, um, but... It's only the same as eight, late 1813, 1814. And at 1814, of course, the, and the reason that conscription doesn't come in in 1815 is because the conscripts of 1815 were called up already in 1814. So they'd already been scraping the bottom of the barrel there. 1815, they've 
you know, they've got the scrapings, but they're a year later. So they're a bit older, a bit wiser. Okay, let's talk about some some of the fighting within all of this. Um, the plan. I mean, the plan is is brutal in terms of its simplicity, but it's all as as the the events themselves indicate. It's also a very effective plan. It comes as close as Napoleon gets within the entire battle. Um, and I suppose you could debate: is it the closest? The only contender, of course, is the Imperial Guard attack beginning to fracture the Allied line. Um, but it comes as close as, as the French get to breaking uh, Wellington's line. And this is the first attack of the day. Your better place to talk about what the plan is and why why, it's a, why it is implemented in the way that it is than I am. Um, so talk us through what the order is and then the reasoning behind this echelon system, the the style of deployment for individual battalions, if I remember this rightly, is exceptionally odd. We're talking ultra thin sort of single lines to a battalion. I might have got that wrong, but that's that's my understanding of what's happened. Please correct me if I've been an idiot there. Um, you just talk us through it all and what, why deploy in this way? Is there a sense of them trying to do something inverted commas a bit different? Um, what's the rationale here? And it's a difficult one to answer because the, no one really says one who is responsible and two why they did it. My suspicion is that Napoleon has a hand in this. So First Corps' diary, which is an underused source really for these things, it was lost for a number of years because someone misfiled it in the archives. Um, under kind of you know Derlon's later stuff from eighteen twenty five or something, um, but. But, um, you know, it's now been found. We can use it. And First Corps' diary says that Napoleon, around 11 o'clock, goes for another scout at the Allied forces and says, OK, I'm going to turn their flank. I'm going to attack through Papalo, Frichemont, La Haye first, turn their, their left, and then attack in echelon from the right of Derlon's corps uh, to, to overthrow the, the Allied lines. And then about an hour later, Ney comes up to Derlon and says, the Emperor's changed his mind. You're going to attack in echelon, but you're going to do it from the left of your corps, attacking La Haysant first, and then kind of working out towards the right. So actually, the the, the Frichemont, the, the eastern flank of the battlefield, will be the last one to be attacked. So Napoleon basically inverts this, this echelon attack, which is why you, you may have read it several times. Um, on the back of Derlon's orders, there is a scribbled note saying, uh, the attack will, will take place from the left. Uh, Comte Delon is to understand that, um, which which wouldn't make sense uh, at all if we didn't know that actually Napoleon had, had given this alternative order an hour earlier. Um, and, and unfortunately, of course, being Napoleon, he didn't give that order to, to write down. He just told Delon the, the previous order. But as part of that first order, he said that battalions should attack, or rather the division should attack in divisions by battalion and that formation is basically every battalion in the division lined up one behind the other um, not to be confused with the attack of battalions by division which is an attack where each battalion has two companies at the front and um, kind of attacks uh, three companies deep um, so th this attack of divisions by battalion 
would basically mean that the eight battalions of each division line up one behind the other. And the line they adopt is three ranks deep. That's that's the standard line of battle for a battalion, three ranks deep. Um, but normally, like I say, they, they would attack in this battalions by division, which has two companies at the front, two behind, two behind that. So the, each battalion there would be nine ranks deep. In this formation, each battalion is only three ranks deep, lined up with five or six companies across the front, depending on whether their skirmishes go out. And then the column is eight, eight battalions deep, so 24 ranks in total. This is unwieldy. It's horrendous. Only one battalion can actually engage the enemy at a time. Um, you can't maneuver. You can't really turn up. They're also closed up. There's about five meters between battalions, um, which basically means you, you can't wheel more than 10 men uh, if you want to close up the gaps between it. Um, you, you can't do anything. Battalion commanders have no agency in this. Regimental commanders, apart from the one at the front, can't do anything um, because you can't move out of that formation. You just have to stand there and be shot at by, by the artillery. So it's not a good formation, but Derlon, in his, his first core diary, basically intimates that it's Napoleon who told him to use that formation. Napoleon himself doesn't criticize the formation in his later memoirs, which is unusual for Napoleon. He criticizes everything else about Waterloo. It's Ney's fault. It's Grouchy's fault. It's Derlon's fault in the 16th. He doesn't blame Derlon for this. Now, part of that is because he never admits that this was a defeat. Um, he claims that Derlon was quite successful in this attack. Just one brigade was a bit roughed up. Uh, he, he downplays the scale of the, the problem that First Corps has. Um, and I, I'm, I'm guessing with this, I'm extrapolating, but is this because Napoleon knew he was responsible for that formation, for that attack, and therefore he pretended it was a success? There was nothing to excuse, so he gave no excuses. Um, no, we don't actually know who gave that, that order for the formation, but like I say, I suspect Napoleon... Um, other hints, uh, Durut asks to, to deploy this brigade on the right. He's told, no, you can't interfere with the emperor's dispositions. So again, it's Napoleon who's given the order for that formation. Um, no, these are these are hints, but it's possible that Napoleon did. The, the only thing against it is that Napoleon did not habitually give tactical orders on the battlefield. He left it to his core commanders. It would be unusual for him to, to interfere in this case and dictate the, the formation that the attack should take. Um, on the other hand, the Waterloo campaign is full of very unusual things. Um, Napoleon is not on top form. Um, his entire command structure of appointing Ney and then overriding him is a disaster. Um, so you know, the, the logical thing of saying Napoleon wouldn't normally do it, I'll agree, but equally it's not definitive proof because he does a lot of stuff that he shouldn't do um but th that formation basically what we are talking about is a formation uh of a battalion wide at the front um each battalion in three ranks so about 200 men wide maybe 150 uh and 24 men deep per division so a massive column and nice big target if you're an artilleryman so surely the men in the front battalion would have just known that they're not going to make it i mean these these men are veterans right they they know what artillery fire will do they've only got to do a quick glance over their shoulder to see and we'll get to heights and whether or not they could or couldn't have seen but it doesn't take much for you to work out i'm in the front line of this unit we're a massive column i'm a sitting duck that must have been absolutely terrifying yeah and i mean they have an advantage in that in that 
about an hour before, maybe half an hour before the advance, they go down the slope um, and they stop in the, the lee of the intermediate ridge. So the Waterloo battlefield, for those who don't know, has a ridge to the north, which the Allies are lined up on, a ridge to the south, which the French start lined up on, and one kind of meandering down the middle of the valley, which is lower than the other two, but it's still deep enough to create two kind of shallow valleys, basically. And if you stand behind that intermediate ridge, you can't be seen from the Allied heights. Um, and equally, you know, if you stand in the Allied, at the bottom of the Allied slope, you can't be seen from the French heights because of this intermediate ridge. And so the, the divisions go down into that dip about half an hour before they, they have the final advance. So basically they can't see the Allied lines and they can't see the Allied artillery just before they start to advance. And I imagine that's a bit of an advantage for some men. Um, others might have been terrified because they know it's there and you know what you can't see can sometimes terrify you. Um, but for a lot of men, because they couldn't see what they were about to march into, it might have been easier. Uh, morale is very high as well, we know that. Men are geeing each other up. There's a lot of noise. Uh, this is something that I, I kind of bring out in the book. This This attack is made in a wave of noise, a permanent crescendo rolling towards the Allied lines of singing, of shouting, of drums, of men bellowing at each other, of people calling close up of orders. Uh, and this is done to encourage people to action. Um, you know, we've all seen a bar brawl or something. You know, people shout, they make noise. Making noise makes you feel that you're intimidating someone. It makes other people feel intimidated. And the French make noise as they advance. And I think they are encouraging each other to action as they do this. So the men at the front probably knew full well they were going to be in trouble, but they thought we're in this huge formation. The Allied troops that we're facing uh, might run away. Um, you know, they've, they've done it before. Um, they're facing Belgians and Dutch troops. They've seen them lined up. Uh, they'll come over onto our side or run away. Um, you know, th there are things in their favor. And I, I like to think if you're going into battle, you tell yourself anything to, to get yourself through it. So they probably told themselves, you know, we'll frighten the enemy off. Our noise is intimidating, um, and they march forward. Um, and it has to be said that they take horrific casualties from the artillery, but they keep going. Um, you know, the, the 45th, uh, we have uh, an officer in that, Lieutenant Martin, uh, who, who talks about this and says, no, not a man showed a cowardly look on his face. Um, not a man falls out of step. I mean, he's exaggerating. They all fell out of step because of the mud and um, people pretending to be wounded, some actually being killed and wounded. Um, but it, it's quite clear that the attack just just sweeps on. So, you know, the, there's an immense courage to these men at the front who, who would have seen death coming and yet you know, march on for, for 15 minutes under fire. What's also quite baffling for those who look at a map and for those who go to the Waterloo battlefield is that when they hear that the original plan was to advance in echelon from the right, i.e. Durrett's 4th Division would have hit home first, there's a very, very good chance that that would have worked. Um, they certainly would have worked far better, I suspect, than um, what actually happens in reality to Durlon's Corps. Um, that's a, a staggering thing to think of, that had the order not been reversed, uh, this could very easily have been very different. Whilst we're yeah. talking about... Sorry, carry on. I, I, can say, I mean, Napoleon probably reverses that because he, he wants a quick victory. Um it, in, in all the, the narratives that Napoleon gives, there's the pause before Derlon goes into action where he sees the Prussians off in the distance. Um, 
and this this kind of brings the necessity to to defeat Wellington quickly to the fore. Going round the the right, the French right, the the Allied left would have brought victory probably. Uh, they they probably would have got through the Nassau's uh, Sex Farmers Brigade in uh, La Haye and Papelot. Uh, they'd have probably got through the two Landwehr brigades, um, covered by a couple of batteries of artillery, but not much else um, of Best and Vinca, uh, who were on the, the ridge behind it. So they probably turned the Allied flank. But all Wellington needed to do there was pull back basically to the line of the main road. Uh, and he could, you know, create, uh, okay, it's, it's a, a right-angled line, but he could reform his line. Napoleon doesn't have time then to break his line a second time, maybe. So I think what, what he is thinking with this is just smash the center. Uh, over in La Haye-Sant, smash the crossroads, get Mont-Saint-Jean, which is what he's aiming for. You know, this, this village that doesn't come anywhere near the battlefield, it's a mile behind the lines. That's what his attack's aiming for. Uh, and I think he, he, in his mind, wants a quick victory. Smash the center, grab that, you break the Allied line in half. If Wellington's canny, he can remove half of his army and live to fight another day. If not, he's destroyed. Um, but victory is his before these Prussians come. Um, I, I think that's why he changes his mind on that flank attack. You know, it, it probably would have worked, but it would have taken longer and might not have gained him more than just you know, a, a bit of ridgeline. There are so many more rabbit holes that we could go down because, of course, the what Napoleon could and couldn't see but when it comes to the Prussians is itself a... Uh... I think hotly debated, isn't it? But we, we don't have time for that. We really don't. Um, we we are, again, um, what, 45, 50 minutes into this, uh, and we've got so much still to talk about. Um, but while we're talking about these formations, I do want to draw in what you've talked about in terms of height within this, because there are some really interesting implications of that. So talk us through heights, and then what this means in terms of what these men would and would not crucially have seen. So crunching the numbers across all of these regiments in First Corps, we get an average height for an infantryman of around 163 centimetres. Um, but there's quite a bit of variation. Grenadiers on average are about 168, fusiliers about 161 to 162, voltigeurs about 160. Um, to put it in perspective, by the way, that's about four to five centimetres shorter than the average British soldier, uh, which is, is interesting in itself. But why French height is so interesting is that their infantry regulations stipulate that battalions line up by height. So the line of battle is formed by each company lining up in height order, the tallest third of men going in the front rank, the shortest third in the second rank, and the middle third in the rear rank. Uh, and obviously I've crunched the numbers on this because I have nothing better to do with my life. Um, so taking the, the the tallest third that we have heights for and knowing each company that they're in, I've done this for every single company in, in First Corps, um, the average height of men in the first rank in Fusilier companies is 168 centimetres. The second rank, the shortest men in that company, is 156, so 12 centimetres or about five inches shorter. So you, you're... In the second rank, you're five inches shorter, 12 centimeters shorter than the men in front. The third rank on average is 162, uh, exactly halfway between them. So they're six, in, six centimeters shorter than the, the front rank, but six taller than the, the rank in front. Now, for visibility, let's add into that their headwear. They're wearing shakos, which are 17 centimeters tall, but a shako, when it's on your head, only sits about eight or nine centimeters above the level of your, your head, because obviously your head fits into 
quite a bit of it. Um, but what we're talking about here is a front rank that looks about 178 to 179 centimeters tall. So just shy of six feet. The men behind them are still 156 centimeters tall. Their eyes don't change just because they're wearing shakos. So they're basically, uh, you know, 20 odd centimeters. Their eyes are, are at least 20 odd centimeters below the height of the man in front. They're in close alignment, which means that they are one uh, pace or, or half pace, I think, um, from the men in front. So 33 centimeters basically from the man in front. If you add the, the depth of the knapsack, which is 11 centimeters, let's call it 45 centimeters from the man in front. Um, but at a, a distance of half a meter, they, they can't see a damn thing um, because the men in front of them are just blocking them. So for men in the second rank of every battalion, they would have seen almost nothing. Men in the third rank would have seen a bit more, but still blocked by the headwear of the men in front and by the head and the headwear of the men in front of them. In this close formation, basically, um, these men aren't seeing much of the battlefield whatsoever. Now let's throw into the mix the French officers who are actually mounted, which is the colonel of the regiment, the adjutant of the battalion, and the chef de battalion. Uh, so the battalion commander, their adjutant, and then the colonel of the regiment. Uh, that's five mounted officers per regiment. Everyone else is on foot. Uh, the only way you're going to see a man in command is, is if they're on a horse, because you, you've got to look up at that angle. You're not going to see a man in command. You might hear your sergeants behind. You might hear your officer off to the side. Um, suddenly, command becomes difficult. What you can see of the enemy becomes difficult, which might be a bonus. You know, some people don't like to see danger. Some people do. Um, but th there are bigger implications here. Just in, in those height uh, kind of statistics for, for what men would have actually seen in battle, what their experience of battle would probably have been. Um, there's also implications for, for firing, if you want me to talk through that. Oh, boy, yes. Go on. Give it give it all to us. So the the French regulations, again, for firing, uh, the, the regulation, they're not stupid. They know that these height differentials are a problem. So the regulation says the front rank should kneel down to fire, the second rank fire over their heads, and the third rank take a step eight inches to the right. And they, they use the term inches because this regulation was written in 1791 updated since, but actually still in force in 1815. Uh, and so they should step to the right and fire in the gap between shoulders. The problem is that requires you to stop. If you stop your attack, can you restart it? Now, under fire, men stopping, kneeling down, they don't often like to get back up. So from experience, French units often kind of dropped this regulation kneeling. They kept on marching. Their idea was to close with the enemy, fire up close, and just keep on closing. Um, that's the way that you drive them off. If you stop, your attack stalls, you risk a counterattack, and especially against the British, who have this horrible tendency to fire and then run at you with big pointy sticks. No one likes that. So what the French uh, have basically developed by the end of the empire is to, to keep on marching and to fire standing up. Front rank, not a problem. Second rank you are trying to fire over the shoulder of a man 12 centimeters taller than you on average. Now, the curvature of the stock of a musket means that the barrel is about five centimeters above the level of your shoulder. So we've still got a, a difference of seven centimeters here. So the only way to get around that is you tweak the, the barrel of your musket up, say between six and nine degrees uh, to get over that gap. 
And what that means is at a distance of 40 meters, you put a musket ball 10 meters above the target, especially as at short range, you're advised to fire at people's knees because the recoil, uh, the trajectory of the bullet um, will actually pull it up anyway. So without that regulation stopping and kneeling, the second rank cannot usefully fire. They can fire between the shoulders of the men in front if they're lucky. That does risk them blowing the hand off the man in front if he's loading his musket. Um, it risks more accidents, but they can maybe do that. Uh, obviously, men in front are going to be hit. They're, they're going to be casualties, so they will get out the way sometimes. Um, but fundamentally, a third of your firepower is useless. Um, the third rank, they can fire quite easily over the, the shoulders of the man in front. They can't fire over the, the man in the front rank because they're still shorter than them. Now, they only have to tweak their musket up by a couple of degrees. So again, at 40 meters, they're firing two or three meters above a target. Um, not much use unless you're fighting giants. All men on horseback, which are uh, quite handy. Um, but fundamentally, and, and this is something that comes into this formation. Some people have suggested this formation was adopted because it gave a full battalion's worth of firepower at the front of a column. And so it negates this disadvantage that the French had had in the peninsula, where they had more men but less firepower. But actually, it doesn't. Um, they still don't have... I mean, for a start, it wouldn't anyway. A battalion's only 450 men, maybe 600 with the skirmish company there. If it's at full strength, the battalions they're facing are the same size. So actually, it wouldn't negate this British and, and indeed allied firepower advantage. Um, but again, with the heights taking that into account, it certainly doesn't negate it because at least a third of the muskets are, are virtually useless. Another third are, are almost useless. Um, you know, two meters above a target at 40 meters is not effective fire. These French battalions are set up not to be effective with their fire simply because of this, this height differential. Now, it's entirely possible some colonels knew that and, and formed their men in different ways. But the regulation, and, and as far as we know, they lined up according to regulation, basically puts them at a disadvantage straight away. But these regulations are so dumb. When you explain it as clearly as that, it sounds like complete insanity. Like you, you said it yourself, just they're set up to fail. Yeah, it's... which is why the, the aim of these columns is to close with the enemy, not not to stop and have a firefight. Because once you've stopped, you have stalled your attack, you're not going to restart it. And also, if you're going to be stopping and trading fire, what is the point of seven battalions behind you who are just there to stop and wait and then go forward again? And, you know, like, like a queue for a ferry it's it's pointless um what these these columns are there for it, it's weight of numbers it's continuing to march forward it's intimidation it's bludgeoning the enemy out of the way um they possibly don't even intend to actually close um they probably intend as happens with Byland's brigade um the the, the the much maligned i would say um dutch belgian brigade who, who actually stand for a while and then give way before this this wave of infantry is that you're faced with an overwhelming number coming towards you that isn't stopping. You've got a choice. You either stand there and probably die or you decamp to the rear. Um, I think they're quite sensible in going back. And quite frankly, the 92nd, uh, pro probably in fact, the entirety of Pax Brigade, because I think the third third of the first and the, the second of the 40, 44th also went backwards at Waterloo. Some people say they didn't engage, um, which is entirely possible. The, the first-hand accounts are entirely contradictory on this but at least one or two british battalions if not three also go back at waterloo because this wave of men coming towards you is not stopping 
they, they are trading fire because the men in the front rank aren't going to just hold their fire. Even though their officers didn't order them to fire, they would shoot. Uh, Christopher Duffy showed this in battle through the 18th century. Um, you know, a man with a gun is going to point it and shoot at someone in front. Uh, it's just natural human nature. Um, but they're not intending to stop and trade volleys because what would be the point of that formation? If you're going to do that, you'd, you'd just advance in line. Um, as indeed, you know, the, the British do. This is, is why, uh, you know, Kemp advances in line with three battalions in line and none in reserve because he, he's trying to get overwhelming firepower. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think they are set up to fail in a firefight, but they're not planning on having a firefight. Um, they're probably hoping the enemy is going to run away before that. There is so much more still to discuss about this. Um, and with an eye on the time and with a mind on the fact that you are recovering from COVID, I am now going to give your voice a rest. Folks, there will be an instalment number three. That will be the last instalment um, of this particular interview. Um, though, frankly, we could probably con continue for another week because there is so much that is so fascinating about this. Graham, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you um, for two hours this evening, parts one and part two. Folks, War, Public Opinion and Policy in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 1785 to 1815. It's Graham's book with Palgrave Macmillan, published in 2017. At the time of recording, there is, I believe, 40% off at Palgrave. Go buy it. You're also going to want the co-author Graham's co-authored book, Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Hellmand with Pen and Sword. That was published last year. Um, Graham, this has been, it, it's not over, obviously, but it is going. that's going to be it for tonight, I think. It's only fair. Um, I can't take up three hours of an entire evening um, out of your life. Thank you so much for such a fascinating and deeply insightful uh, conversation that's, that's leaving my gob on the floor on occasions with lots of different things that I would never have even considered had it not been for this fascinating research. I really appreciate you sharing it with us. Oh, thanks very much for listening to me. Much love to all of you, my loyal Patreon supporters. But folks, remember what I said at the start of this show. The exclusive content comes to an end this month, and I'll be suspending the Marshal, Emperor and Legion to Scholar tiers. So please check the previous exclusive episode, which went into detail on what you need to do. If you are due to be charged between now and the 25th of September for the Marshal, Emperor and Legion to Scholar tiers, you need to change your tier so that you aren't charged for perks that simply won't exist come the 25th of September. If you only subscribe for the exclusive content, you need to suspend your subscription on Patreon and or Spotify. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Melinsky, Stephen Gillen, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Timothy Day, Sam Moore, Stephen Flanagan, Wyatt Pollock, Ulrich Ducado, 
David Graylick, Armin Darbin, Rob Coughlin, Noah Fink, Carol Dixon-Smith, and Paul Geschek. The Admirals, David Priest, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, Stephen Ashworth, Kate Wilcom, Steve Carter, and Clemens. The Marshals, Roy Muir, Ger Brown, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, Keyes Bishop, and Charles McKay. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, JC Kaiser, and Bob Burnham, all of whom, of course, are about to be forced to abdicate. And last, but by no means least, the Legion de Scholars. Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. And I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts, der forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.